This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. We're here with another episode. My name is Lisa. My name is Kara. And you know what we do on this podcast? We talk SVU episodes, true crimes they're based on. And not today, but starting next week, we will have guests coming back after the strike. We're excited. We're talking to some cool-ass people. So stay tuned for that. Also, a little announcement. Uh, we're not in the time machine anymore. I mean, we're always a little bit in a, in a brief time machine because it's not like we're ever recording the day before we uh, release episodes, but we will not have any more early release on um, Amazon and Wondery and all that stuff. Uh, so now we'll be recording pretty close to when the episode comes out. So you won't have to hear us talking about Halloween in December. So that's exciting. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry for the seven of you who maybe listened early, but um, you're you're out of luck now, so. And we just got back from an amazing time in Seattle at the Wet City Comedy Festival. That was so great. Thank you to everybody who came out in Seattle. We had a blast. Um, we don't have any tour dates at the moment, but keep your little eyes perked up. And if you are interested in seeing Lisa perform, go to that'smessedUplive.com. That has a link in it to Lisa's link tree, which has all of her Whoa. tour dates in it. So wow. You Did you set just- that up? Yeah, I just changed our link tree because your website didn't really have wow. anything. And so I changed your website. So where it says Lisa's website, that will take you to all of Lisa's tour dates. And you can go, because that bitch is on the road Websites this year. are retro. Yeah. Websites are retro. Everyone's, I don't think people have websites anymore. It's a link tree. A link tree. I still have link a website. Tree life. I don't really know why. I mean, I pay for the domain. Yeah. I have it. It's not updated. Like, I'd like to own whatever it is. But like... yeah. I don't, I don't, do you go on anyone's website? Unless it's time for tour tickets for somebody, but I still just go to like a ticket map. Yeah, like yeah. I, I don't go on people's websites. Yeah. Unless your name is vulture.com. But <laughs> yeah, I guess not really. Like, I, I guess I will check to see if somebody's like legit if they have a website, but I don't know. It really depends. Um, but I don't think that's the standard anymore. anymore I don't know. Th- I don't think having a website means you're legit or not. I think you have to have millions of followers and that means you're actually um, yeah. legitimate. Yeah. A legitimate person. <laughs> yeah. Just follow. I don't know what... Yeah, because I remember when I first started comedy, like, getting a business card was a thing you would do. Yes. Oh, like I, oh I've had multiple business cards. Like, a little cartoon graphic of me on it that says caraclank.com has all my social handles on it. Yeah. Well, I bet you made a card before you even had socials. Maybe. Did you not? No, I, I don't remember. But... 
My first website, a friend made it for me. Like anytime I had to update it, she had to go in there and like recode. I was like, this is terrible. Like, thank God for like Squarespace. This isn't even like an ad for Squarespace, but they should sponsor us because I do use them. But like, there was a time where I was really using my website for show like dates and stuff. And now it's just like, yeah, Instagram. Everything's Instagram. Well, it's so wild because the girl, Tyler Fetter, who made my first business cards and I'd buy art from her very young. She doesn't even take really commissions anymore because she's a fucking child's book author. Like she illustrates and writes books. And like, I hit her up for something. I'm like, do you do this anymore? And she's like, absolutely not. Um, Uh But I found her like way back in the day, um, over a decade ago. And I just loved all her art. And yeah, Tyler Fetter. Well, now I'm on her website. So, yeah, they do work, I guess, because now I want to know what she writes in case I, oh, I've seen bodies are cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. That's the girl who made my first business card. Can you believe it? Wow. Can you even believe it? She has a book called All About, or she illustrated a book called All About Vulvas and Vaginas and All About Penises. Love that. Wow. This is great. Yeah, she's like a cool person, but she would make greeting cards and I'd get people's, um, like pets. Actually, our friend has one that I made for her birthday. Like I just made, I would I would commission for her work all the time. I love Ty- Tyler Fetter. Um, so just shout that's out awesome. to her. Didn't, didn't a, know that that was going to happen. She has a little book that's called Are You Mad at Me? And I don't know what's on the cover. It looks like a little ostrich and it's so cute. And it's like that's about really kids' anxieties. Cute. And I love that. Oh my God. Shout out yeah. to this girl who I don't even know. Um Yeah, I think the future of kids are just going to be like, I just can't wait to see their emotional intelligence. I'm already seeing the difference of how kids are raised, but it is just so good. And I don't understand the people that are like, in my day, and it's like, yeah, you cried in a corner in silence. Like, I don't... I don't know why they fantasize about like, well, we didn't have participation trophies. Sophie Buttle has a funny joke. She goes, well, I actually participated. So I don't know what the confusion is. (laughs) Like, what's... Like what? I don't know. I just like, I don't get the attachment to harshness or to a harsh life or, well, the world's going to be tough. So don't baby your kid. And it's like, well, who else is going to baby your kid? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I had them to baby them, but like my kids will be wilding out in a Walgreens and people will be looking at me and I'm like, yeah, we're not allowed to hit them. Sorry. We just can't hit them. Like, <laughs> you know, like I didn't do a ton of shit my parents asked me to do because I knew my dad would smack me. And like, they just you can't do that anymore. So not that I want to, Jesus, I don't want to. But sometimes I just yeah. have to let them wild out in a Walgreens, you know? And get it out yeah. of their system. And there's all kinds of different like techniques and shit, you know? But just talking, I had a moment. I mean, yeah. I felt loved. Like I, I, you know, I, my parents are great, but there, there was a moment when I first started therapy years ago where she, my therapist asked me um, when things were wrong with you as a kid or something happened, who did you talk to? And it hit me that it was nobody. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't talk to anybody about anything that was bothering me. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? No wonder I isolate now. Like, it's so clear to me that now if something is wrong, I like don't leave my house for days and don't want to talk to anyone and like hide under yeah. the covers. But then my just one quick connection where I was like, oh yeah, if something, if someone was like mean to me or I cried or I was embarrassed or anything, I would never tell my parents. I would never tell my sister. I would never tell anybody. Wow, that's interesting. I and mean, I don't yeah. Know. 
I remember talking to my mom about people hurting my feelings like at school and stuff like that. But like, if I did something wrong, I would take it to the grave. I would lie. I would just like, I was so scared of getting in trouble all the time that I was like, I just, like, I'm trying to tell Rosie, like, even if you did something wrong, please tell me. Like, we'll figure it out together and I'm not going to punish you, you know? Because like, well, so, that's what you want. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's the whole happen. thing. Like, you shouldn't <laughs> yell. Like, you shouldn't yell if your kid tells you something because then why would they tell you the next time? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, but then I always see people arguing in comments and stuff and, like, discussions about this where it's like, well, you need to punish. And it's like this punitive attitude. Yeah. It's just not positive. And I'm well, so glad to see. Well, I think the difference see- is, is like people think that there's either punitive, like screaming punishment, or there's gentle parenting, which is let your kid do whatever the fuck they want. And there's a middle ground. Like a lot of people yeah. don't like gentle parenting. I don't like gentle parenting. It's too much for me. Like to be fucking calm like that all the time. I can't do it. Like, but there's well, so- they're also liars. Yeah. But there's like so many ways where like you can draw boundaries. And even though you're saying like, you like, I'm not going to be able to let you have this right now because you're throwing it and that's going to hurt somebody. And I get that that sucks for you. You know what I mean? It's like all this ways of like, I am sort of punishing you. You don't get the toy you want, but I'm not like, go to your room or like, yesterday I tried to tell Oscar, he did something so crazy. And I go, well, now you're not going to have dessert. And Jared was like, remember that that's so far away from what he did? dessert is in an hour. He's not going to remember what he did. And I was like, you're right. Like, and that's the shit they teach us on all these Instagram accounts. I just forgot. Like, you know, because in the moment I'm like, well, you just threw something at my head. Like I have to, I have to give you some kind of consequence. Anyway, this is a parenting blog now, a parenting podcast, (laughs) a parenting blog. Oh my God. Well, I'm not even a parent. You know, I'm just watching from the sidelines and realizing that like, I was just going through my whole adolescence yeah. In silence. Yeah. And I'm a talker. I'm a chatter. So it's just, it's so strange. And I don't, because I remember once I called my parents during pandemic lockdown and I was crying. I was like, t- you know, worried about my yeah. whatever. And all my dad kept saying is, never cry. Don't you cry. You'll oh never have to cry. And it's like, oh, you don't, you don't get it. But I get where his, that's I get his where trauma, he's coming right? from. Yeah, that's his. He doesn't. He does it. He's in a position where he's like, I want to make sure you never have to cry. But it's like, I don't know. I cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you. Um, but yeah, I just, I wish, this isn't an original thing. Where's this from? Where it's like, I wish I can go back and like hold my, like hold, like hold our parents when they were little. Or I something. know. Oh my God. Yeah. Like to this day, there's there'll be people in my family that have like cancer, and I'm I'll be like, Mom, have we talked to Aunt So and So about that? She's like, No, we're we're like, li-. and I'm like, We just leaving it. Al- we're just not mentioning it. Like, there's you know, her side of the family is like Catholic and has all kinds of like, don't talk about it shit that over there too. You know? Yeah, the Catholics really hate to talk. Yeah, they really, really <laughs> they love to keep stuff inside. Yeah, because they're pedophiles. <laughs> Why else would you instill a code of silence if it wasn't to make sure people didn't talk about what you're up to? I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why it's baked in like that. So, like, hard. Casey's waving the flag. Casey's waving the flag. Thank you to the people who came to our New York show, by the way. This reminds us. We had a group of people that came to our New York show. They were so fun. And 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 actually, one of them has been on an SVU. He's been a part on SVU. But uh, they brought us these 
sweatshirts, beautiful material, beautiful quality, heavy sweatshirts that say the jizz is a match, which is something Lisa said on an episode from last month. And on the back of it, it says, we got to start. Casey's waving the flag. So these sweatshirts are getting more and more specific. And we appreciate all of the gifts you guys have brought to us. I don't think you guys realize how often I am making a friendship bracelet with my daughter that you guys brought for them or feeding them snacks that you brought to us, like packaged snacks. I don't take baked goods. Thank you, though. Uh, like, uh, Except we took one, we took one homemade item, but she was wearing glitter pants and we just trusted her. So, <laughs> Uh, well, because we loved our chocolate-covered Fritos in Cleveland so much from Susan L. Chocolatiers that someone in New York made us their own chocolate-covered Fritos. Yes, yes. And they made us chocolate-covered Oreos. It was amazing. So everything you guys bring us is, like, amazing, and we appreciate but it. But also no pressure, because sometimes people come to our live shows and be like, I'm sorry, I didn't bring you or I left this. I'm like, you don't have, you do, yeah. you don't have to bring yeah. anything at all, at all. But, you know, gift-giving is my love language, so it's like, I... I'm happy to receive, yes. but never yeah. necessary. Um, never and necessary. if you have a loved one in your life and you want to give them a little hint or reno about something to give you for the upcoming Valentine's Day, which I think is kind of a bullshit holiday, but if you celebrate, um, I get love our Valentine's cute little Day. get our cute little college sweatshirt that we have on our merch shop. It's running out. We only have a couple dozen left of the little. It says. It's the that's messed up like collegiate sweatshirt. And then it says ambitious and tipsy in the center. And it's super cute. It's very soft. I just got mine yesterday. I'll be posting a photo of myself in it very soon. Um, did you get yours, Lisa? Did it come? Um, oh yeah. But yeah. it looked like too small of a package. I haven't been opening my packages in months. Yeah, it's I'm pretty like it's packed up pretty compact. So but I have it. I'll put it on. Head on over to uh, that's messed up live.com oh. and that has the link to our merch shop where you can buy that. There's also a few of the purple sweatshirt left. And when the purple sweatshirt goes, it's gone. So if you've been wanting to get yourself the purple sweatshirt, we're we're That's only selling that until we're done. And Lisa and I wear that on like every flight that we take pretty much. And um, yeah. And if you're listening to it the day it comes out, 116, it's my dad's birthday and Jared's birthday. Big birthday so for, our, for some of the men in our lives. Our Capricorn, um, our Capricorn men, it's their birthday. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know what I'm going to get him, but. I know, I'm like, I don't really get Jared anything, but I'm taking him to a steakhouse. That's always what I do. I take him to steak. Oh, and then our producer Casey's is on the 17th. So tomorrow we'll, we'll be doing a birthday post for you on the Instagram, Casey's. So you'll get some birthday love. Don't you worry. Don't yeah. you worry. Um. <laughs> Listen, um, you know, on the new year, it is 2024 as we record this. And, you know, I just feel really lucky to have the podcast. And yeah, yeah, it just seems it feels um, great to be able to have this podcast. And we really love, we to love do it. it. And we're excited so. for exciting more things in 2024 with this pod, babies. Yeah, um, but I have no goals. That, so that's really cool. It's like, we'll see what happens in 2024, but I have absolutely no goals. No, that's not true. I do have one goal for the year. Um, once I get my new apartment and everything, my goal is I would like to host. I would like to have people over. I want oh, to be able to, I, love I want that. couch hangs. I want to maybe host a Thanksgiving. Like my goal is to create an environment that I want people to come over to. Okay. I will. That is my goal for the 2024 yes. year. Oh. Other than that, 
nothing. I would say we have a little podcast goal in that we are, go- we like, so if you guys saw, we made a pretty fun little TikTok video of our SVU fans TikTok video, which in my opinion, Mariska Hargitay and the cast copied it because I don't know why they didn't just do one that said we're SVU detectives. Instead, they did we're SVU fans and that's exactly what we did. So it, I felt like it was, um, they took uh, inspiration from us. But we are going to try to do more like fun TikTok videos. If you think there's a trend, you think it'd be fun for us to do, send it to us. But follow our TikTok. It's a little bit hard on TikTok to find shit. So ours is called Not That's Messed Up There because what's hilarious is if you put that in, you just get a lot of really fucked up videos. Um, So we are an SVU podcast. That's our username on TikTok, an SVU podcast. So just the second part of our uh, podcast name. So go follow us and like, I don't know, tell us what fucking little dances we should be doing because we're down to do some uh, cool TikTok shit. Yeah, that's a good goal too. We want to make fun, trending, as few content, and I would like to host gatherings. Yes. So. And I <laughs> Those are- have to finish a lot of projects that I've started, but I need to spend, I need to, my, I'm working on this with my therapist. I need to spend more time doing a little bit more um, self-care. And I know that sounds like really woo-woo, but like I have to not just like block my day off all day long with like work and then stuff to do for my kids and this and that and like try well, to- Well, I don't know if- this is, I don't know if this therapist is the first person to tell no, you to no, do no, no, something no, like no, this. No, 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 but she and I are actively working on it. She's trying to hold That's me good. accountable. <laughs> oh, no, no. That well, is many good. people have said that. I just need to like, um, you know, I'm trying to not lose my mind. Um, but let's get started because we have a great episode for you today. One I've been wanting to do since the beginning. It's a hot one. It's 2024 now, guys. You got to switch things up, get the year started with a new, fresh, new thing. And now I'm trying something new. It's called Athena Club. It's a premium razor that I think I deserve. And it only costs $10. And that comes with a razor handle, two sharp five-blade razor heads for a super smooth shave every time. You can also moisturize while you're shaving using the razor's built-in avocado oil and hyaluronic acid serum. I used to be a girl going to get my razors at the pharmacy paying out the nose. I mean, like the what they used to charge for razors that you had to get behind the counter, criminal. Now these are coming right to my house. Even if I forget that I need to get more, they're showing up in the mail. I The biggest problem for me is gonna be which color to choose because there's so many gorgeous colors. Are you ready to upgrade your shaving experience? Switch to the best razor on the market and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Head over to athenaclub.com to try their award-winning razor and body products and get 20% off your purchase with code SVU at checkout. You can also find Athena Club razors at your local Target store. Trust me, you won't look back. Happy shaving. Okay, today we are doing Dependent, one of my faves, uh, season eight, episode 14. This little baby came out in 2007, early 2007. Just like this one is one of those ones that feels like a movie to me. Yeah. You know, like lots of um, interesting sort of like twisties and stuff. So we open on a father and his young son walking down the city sidewalk. It's nighttime. And the dad is Carrie Elwes. We got to call it out right away. You know him from tons of shit. I didn't even realize what an icon of my childhood he is until I went to his IMDb. Like he's had a huge career Princess Bride, I would say, was his big breakout role. He's been in Hot Shots and Robin Hood Men in Tights. Like back, did you used to like those movies? Like Naked Gun type movies, like those parody movies. Like they were always based on like 
Like Hot Shots is based on Top Gun and Robin Hood Men in Tights is based on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And like, but they were all just like these goofy, they don't make movies like this anymore. I think this, these are the movies that led to like scary movie and stuff like that, but they just don't make them like this anymore. And I'm obsessed with these kind of movies. I thought they were the funniest things ever when I was younger. I knew them better, like Spaceballs, I knew better than Star Wars. Like I knew all these parody movies better than their originals. And he was like a, king of like these funny movies and Princess Bride is a comedy as well so that made sense well and he's um, Diane Neal's favorite guest star that she ever oh, worked that's with right. it's like that's her crush right. and they had like a moment yes and she kept wanting him to say like as you wish or whatever yeah. to her and like <laughs> but then he's he does other shit like he's very versatile he was in the movie Kiss the Girls uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula The Crush with Alicia Silverstone which is kind of like a Poison Ivy type movie and Liar Liar he also plays a character named David Luckner in Seinfeld does that mean anything to you? David Luckner. I can't remember I, I should have I should have written down the episode I didn't write down the episode he sells insurance wait he's British? Yeah. I didn't know he was British. Oh, yeah. Carrie Elwes is British. Oh, my God. Which is what's so funny because I think he's really putting on an accent in this. Like, he's really trying to be a New Yorker in this episode, and it's quite funny. So he's in season seven, The Wait Out. He took extreme exception to remark that George Costanza made about him and Beth. He made the same remark when he and Elaine saw George with Susan. I think it's the, oh, you can do way better. Oh, is well, with, yeah, it's with Deborah Messing. Like they're, uh, yes, they're married to each other. And George jokingly is like, ah, you can do better than this guy. And it kind of yeah. fucks with their relationship. And then at the end, <laughs> they try to fuck George over, but George never wants to be with Susan. So he's like <laughs> thrilled um, to have a fork in it. Wait, so this guy's really- um, No, and he's in the original Saw and he was in the latest Mission Impossible. So- yeah, he's like still working constantly and like he's had a career that spanned decades. So very accomplished, Damn, British. And he's hot now. Like he's hot. He's been hot for a while, I would say. Yeah. He looks good. I would say he did this SVU kind of during a lull, but then he had like a full comeback. Like I think with Saw and like Mission Impossible and stuff, like he's back. But I think he was like away for a little while and this was like his, like one of his comeback uh, or his lull roles when he was in this. And He's talking to his little son walking down the street whose name is Tommy. If you haven't been, if, you, if you're new to the podcast, there's a conspiracy that too many characters are named Tommy and there are many, many. And one of our listeners is keeping track and has sent us a huge list. I have a favorite Tommy. He's not it, but this is a cute Tommy as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, this Tommy, Tommy is cute. I like him. And they're like, the dad's like, why didn't your friend's parents just call your mom to come get you? And he's like, well, the phone just kept ringing and ringing, dad. And she and they're like, oh, the, da the dad's like, she must be asleep. But, you know, in us, you. That's probably never the case. So then the kid um, pulls the, when are you coming back to live with us, daddy? Question. And the dad's like, soon. So done, done. There's some kind of domestic tension going on in this family. I don't know if they're divorced or separated. We don't know the answer yet. So he's carrying the boy inside and he's explaining, you know, even though me and your mom aren't together, you know, we love you very much, right? And he's like, can you stay over tonight? And the dad's like, how about I tuck you in, tell you your favorite story. And then out of nowhere, while they're chatting, uh, something glass smashes over the head of Carrie Elwes. He falls to the ground. And when I tell you this gave me an actual jump scare, I was watching this in bed and I went, like, I truly gasped. And even though I've seen the episode probably seven times and was expecting something to happen, the glass shattering on him really made me, like, scared last night when I was re-watching it. And then... 
The little boy runs away, screaming, runs to his mom's bedroom, tries to wake her. All we see is him shaking like a lifeless arm because her she's covered in a uh. comforter. It's really horrible. This is like so traumatic for this little boy. That's why I feel like it's like a movie because the opening is really like trauma and, and like feels graphic. Um, so the little boy runs the other way, shuts himself into another area of this very beautiful, spacious apartment and locks the door. And he... Uh, we see Car Carrie Elwes on the ground bleeding, but alive. Like he's moaning a little bit. And we see from his blurry point of view, we can see a figure just standing in the hallway, but we can't make it out. And then the kid presses some kind of panic button and we hear an alarm go off. So cut to Melinda telling Bangs Benson and Forehead Stabler that the dad's name is Sidney Truex and is still unconscious. Benson is rocking Bangs. Stabler's forehead is popping. And Liv is like, Sydney Truex, the mob attorney, because, you know, like, everybody knows everybody in this show. Uh, you mean him of the ball-bearing fortune? So they follow Melinda into the bedroom where they have a very graphic body reveal of Tommy's mom. They're like, she was raped, sodomized, and bludgeoned, and then they, like, take the comforter off, and you're just like, yeah, I can see where all those injuries happened. There's just, like, blood everywhere. She's, like, lying there, uh, like, eyes open, very just dead. And Melinda goes and makes it worse and says, not only is this a hor horrific scene, but this woman slowly bled to death. So Ugh. don't worry, it didn't happen quickly. So no DNA was found on her because the object used to sexually assault her was a candlestick, which they hold up and show that. It's really, really graphic. Um, and Stabler, sounds, Stabler goes, sounds like this guy has anger issues. And it's like, takes one to know one. And there's a per partial bloody print from a tennis shoe on the carpet. That's like pretty much one of the only pieces of evidence they found. Um, another person that lives in the home is Charlotte, the 16-year-old daughter, but she is not home at the moment. And Daddy Stabler's like, at 1 a.m. And the brother said she was spending the weekend at a friend's house. So... Tommy is pretty traumatized, they say, and duh. But they held off talking on him until SVU got there, so they go talk to him. He's super cute, this kid. He's just, like, staring off into space, looking so, like, upset. And no child— and he has, like, a bowl cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, of course, no child can resist Olivia Benson's patented tell-me-what-you-saw speech, and he said, a monster hurt my daddy. And then we cut to the credits. So now, at the top of Act 1, we're at the precinct. Cragen shows up in black tie. Benson immediately rips on him. What, no top hat? And it turns out he was at a city councilman daughter's wedding, and Daddy Cragen got pulled out of the after party for updates on this case. And I'm like, Cragen, you're out at a wedding after party at 2 a.m.? What's going on? So they're talking about motive. Plenty of mob people could want to get back at Sydney. Could be someone that came for him uh, and didn't know that they were separated, so they were actually looking for Sydney. Does anyone have a grudge against the mom? And they're like, she's a pharmaceutical sales rep. It doesn't seem like there'd be a ton of enemies there. Hard to run a background check on the family at this hour, and the daughter is still, like, unaccounted for. Finn figures out the friend that Charlotte might be staying with. So at the apartment of said friend, the girl is like, um, no, she left before I woke up. I don't know where she went. And the mom shows up and blows up her whole story and is like, <laughs> uh, stop lying to the police. Charlotte wasn't here and she is no longer allowed in our home. And they're like, what's up? And the mom's like, she used to be nice, but she started lying and skipping school. She's probably on drugs. And the daughter's like, mom, shut up. And the, the mother is like, she doesn't even like your ass. She just uses you as a cover story. 
And then as they're leaving, the daughter's like, listen, Charlotte's not a bad person. It's her mom. Because like, clearly they both hate their moms for like, you know, being moms. This girl reveals that Charlotte has a boyfriend named Ryan Beckford, but that Charlotte's mom hates him, won't let her date him. And that's why she has to lie. And where does he live? And she immediately knows. I wonder if this is true in New York that all the kids just know the names of the buildings where other kids in their class live. He lives at the Packard on First Avenue. So they show up to this apartment. Ryan answers the door shirtless. He looks familiar, this actor. So I look him up and he was on Guiding Light for like 100 episodes, but he doesn't act that much anymore. And now he's a professional organizer. He says he's a personal organizer to the stars with a business called the OCD Experience, which I'm sure people with actual OCD don't appreciate, but I thought that was an interesting uh, little fun fact about this guy. He wants to know, like, am I in trouble? And he's like, Charlotte's 16 and I'm 19, so there's nothing illegal. And they're like, where are your parents? And he's like, in St. Bart's. And his apartment, of course the parents are in St. Bart's. This apartment has like (laughs) insane views, like gorgeous views, which if he's on First Avenue, I'm assuming this is just views of Queens and Brooklyn. And And uh, he calls to Charlotte. He's like, babe, come down here. She comes down a spiral staircase in a New York apartment just to continue to add how nice it is. And she's like, aye, aye, aye. Let me guess. My dumb parents sent you. And they tell her there's been an accident. And she's like, yeah, right. It's a trick. My parents are psychos who fake accidents to get me to stop dating my boyfriend. (laughs) And um, this actor is Emily Van Camp. She is a Canadian actress who I discovered on the show Brothers and Sisters, which was like an ensemble drama where she actually plays the secret daughter of Tom Skerritt, who we've had on the podcast. And I think a lot of people also know her for starring in Revenge, which is a show I've never seen one minute of, but I know people were really obsessed with it. That to me seemed like a show that was like scandal pre-scandal, like a good soapy nighttime show about like family dynamics and crazy, you know, probably crimes happening and stuff like that. But what's wild about her, she's, okay, she was in a show called Everwood, 89 episodes, Brothers and Sisters, yeah, that's 75 what I was episodes. Say. Yeah. 89 episodes of Revenge and then 76 episodes of a show called The Resident. That's what I was saying. This Where girl does she is find so the time? famous. She's so famous, but she only has 29 credits because she's always just the star. She's always just a series regular in something that lasts for like 10 seasons. I just can't believe she's been a series regular of over like four shows. Yeah. Yeah. You don't see that like all the time. Like, I think most people are lucky to get one show like that. And she just seems like she kind of got discovered in Everwood. And then like, that's where uh, she was in something else before Everwood that I think was her actual discovery. But, you know, just going to do tons. And and The Resident, I think, just ended last year. So she's working, probably getting so much money in like, I don't know. I don't think Brothers and Sisters plays in residuals, but like The Resident might or Revenge might like play in other countries or play on cable. Who knows? So that this is Emily Van Camp. I again, I know her as a brothers and sisters gal, which was famously a show I stuck with for a long time and eventually had to give up, even though I'm very loyal to shows. The detectives are like, throw a bra on and come with us. And she's like, no. And then Stabler cuts to the chase and is like, your dad's in the hospital and your mom's dead. And it's really wild. He just like is like, all right, this little brat's not gonna come with us. I'm just yeah. gonna tell her what's up. And I'm okay with that. Like she's yeah. being annoying. Yeah. The balls on she, all these kids. Yeah. She looks like shook, shocked, but not like upset. Like she's not immediately crying. She's just like, and the boyfriend's like, oh, babe, let me come with you. You shouldn't be alone. She goes, no, stay here. I got to go be with my brother. So now at the precinct, Charlotte busts in like 
Tommy, I'm here. And he bolts screaming, get away from me, get away from me. So she's like, what's wrong with him? And Huang is like, oh, he's just traumatized. And she says that they have an aunt in Riverdale they could stay with. And when asked about enemies, she's like, come on, half the city hates my dad's guts because of all these cases he does. He's like a mob, uh, like he defends mob people. So we find out that he hired a PI recently, Sydney, because their home had been graffitied. They'd had their trash gone through and like spread out all over the place. Bags of shit on fire in front of their home. Swastikas on the fronts of their house. And then the family cat was missing and showed up in pieces on their doorstep. And they show like a bunch of boxes. Like they shipped, like they mailed the cat or something or left it on boxes on their doorstep. Sorry, I know we have a lot of cat listeners. So Trigger warning, a cat we never see has been killed by the mob. Um, So now we're talking to a mob specialist, I guess. And he's like, oh yeah, my top guest would be Lucio Ricci. He's a sicko. His dad was Sydney's client, but Sydney lost a big racketeering case for the dad. And then the feds took everything they had and Lucio blames Sydney for everything. So like, take a look at this hate mail that we have from him. And it's like this whole letter that's like, I'm going to kill your family. I hate you, blah, blah, blah. And the handwriting is a match because this this mob specialist detective or whatever has done a handwriting analysis. So they're like, well, why haven't you gone after him if he's doing all this stuff? And they're like, Sydney wouldn't let us. He felt bad that he didn't get the dad off, that the dad got convicted. And so he's like, yeah, let Lucio have his little temper tantrum. But, you know, he they're like, where, where can we find him? He hangs out at San Marco Hall in Little Italy, which is funny because I don't really know if the mob actually hangs out in Little Italy that much anymore. But they go into this place and it's very Sopranos-ish in there, okay? It's very, like, I'm very much getting, like, a Sopranos vibe. Lucio's like, oh, that scumbag lawyer, I never touched a hair on his head. I was just playing. Like, he admits to doing all these, like, sort of pranky things. Unfortunately, the cat was a victim. But he's like, if someone says I heard him, I'm being framed. I never did anything to him or his family. You just ask him. And they're like, well, we will because they had just gotten a phone call and he's awake. So at the hospital, Sydney has Aliza Fave and all the way around the head bandage on. And um, they're telling him, don't worry, Tommy wasn't hurt. And they're like, well, so what? but they're asking him like, what's up with all these threats? And he goes, oh, you mean Lucio? He's like, yeah, I know about those. But when I moved out of the apartment, the threat stopped. He goes, you think he killed my wife? And uh, he says, I don't remember anything. The doctors are saying I might have temporary memory loss. He remembers walking Tommy up and then feeling a terrible pain and he must have blacked out. And when he opens his eyes, he says, I saw... And then he hesitates. There's like a long pause. Music is swelling. And then he says he saw his daughter running down the hallway. It was Charlotte. She killed her mother. But he goes, mother. He's trying really hard to do a New York accent and it's very funny. It was Charlotte. She killed her mother. That's the end of act one. Done, done. So now they're talking to Charlotte at the precinct and she's like, I told you I wasn't home that night. And they're like, yeah, but your father saw you. And she's like, he's a lawyer. He lies for a living. And then they're like, well, what's your relationship like with him? And she's like, well, it's fine. We get along fine because he's never home and he's not around. And then they're like, what about your mom? And she's like, well, her idea of parenting was locking me up so she didn't have to deal with me. I had to lie because she hated my boyfriend for no reason and wouldn't let us be together. So she says, we went out that night to a friend's place. I got pretty wasted. Then we left and went back to Ryan's place. And I was there until you guys woke us up. And she's like, we need names from the party. And she's like, I'm not dragging my friends into this whole, my mom brutally got murdered thing. You know, like that's not for them. And then Liv's like, you better make a list, bitch, before we question every kid in the school. And so we cut to a series of interviews that are true comedy. Like they're all these teens and they're like all 
with creepy smiles plastered on their faces, just lying. Like, no, actually, officer, I was babysitting all night. Like, cut to a kid being like, I was writing a paper. And like, they were all just saying whatever bullshit they were doing on Friday night. And then this other girl they talked to goes, I was at a movie with another girl. And they're like, well, that girl said she was babysitting. And she goes, oh, I was watching a movie with her at the babysitting job. And they're like, <laughs> bitch, it's over. Like, stop. And she's like, fuck, I knew we were going to get caught. We had a party. And like, she sings like a canary. She's like, there was a party, uh, you know, whatever. And then uh, now we're with all the psycho kids that were all lying and they're all on the steps. They're like, thanks for ratting us out, Suze. <laughs> and then they're like, we want to know what Charlotte did that night. And one kid says, oh, baby blues, Valium. <laughs> and one kid's like, they just meant like what she did. They didn't mean like what drugs. Stop giving out too much information to the cops. So now they've moved all of these four kids to a classroom. And one kid admits, yeah, the Valium was my mom's. It was a farm party. Not farm with an F, farm with a PH. Everybody puts random pills in a bowl and you take what you want. I've never heard of that. But I do know my brother used to take my mom's pharmaceuticals and just bring them to parties and they would just see what happens. But I don't think it was grab bag, like, let's just, like, see what we pop in. That feels, like, reckless even for teens to, like, just not even know what you're putting in. Um, and then a kid in a backwards newsboy cap was like, yeah, I took Adderall. It keeps you up. And I can guarantee he was the most annoying person to talk to at that party, for sure. Um, and they all say what they took. Like, I was doing this. I was taking that, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, what were Charlotte and Ryan doing? And they were like, oh, they were skittling. That's over-the-counter cold tablets. They look like candy. You take a bunch of those and you're flying. I think especially also if you drink with it. And then they said Ryan also took Oxy. Charlotte said she was going to go home, but who knows where she was going. She could barely stand. And Stabler's like, you guys are lucky you didn't die. And the redheaded girl goes, it's medicine from a doctor. It's not like we're taking crack or heroin. And I do kind of love that this show is tackling this because I think that the oxycodone thing like got more big in the 2010s. This episode is from like 07, you know? Like people just, like, I don't know that people knew that we were in such a pharmaceutical epidemic at that time yet. And the show- I'm like opposite. I trust street drugs way more than a pharmaceutical company. Right, right. Like, <laughs> I'm because like you just don't know. Like some people die taking the drugs they were supposed to take. Like, they just took it with the wrong other drug. Like, we've yeah. heard of so, so many people like that where it's, like, completely innocent. They weren't even trying to get fucked up. They were just taking their regular medicine, and they didn't realize that if you take it with a X for a muscle thing, it could fuck you up. So, I am totally the opposite. <laughs> like, but it is funny how this girl is like, it's from a doctor. It can't hurt you. And now Benson and Stabler are having a chilly al fresco walk and talk with Huang. And they're like saying how Charlotte was on cold meds and Valium. That's not exactly going to throw you into a rage. And Liv says, well, maybe she went home to grab more drugs and the mom has samples because the mom's a pharma rep. So... Huang says they checked the whole house, but they forgot the basement, which he just seems to remember that they did that, which is great for the television program because now we can just cut to the detectives in the basement. There's a huge mess of pills. Papers and shit are everywhere. Like, it's just like a pile of pills in the middle of the room with like shit strewn about. Like, this place got ransacked. Huang says any combo of these pills could make you violent. The more pills she popped, the more violent she'd get. Then our girl, Lisa Lapira pops up and she's like, we might be able to figure out what exactly they took. Boom, there's pee-pee in the potty, okay? They, there is urine in one of the toilets and they're gonna test that shit and see what's up. 
So Melinda says um, there's no DNA from the toilet situation, but the but it, the urine was positive for benzos, opiates, and cold pills. But the pills wouldn't have hit her so quickly, Melinda says, that she didn't have time to metabolize them, but her blood alcohol was 0.25. So she was extremely wasted. Like, that's very, very drunk. Like, 0.1 is like you can't drive, and 0.25 is like two and a half times that. So she was wasted enough to attack her mom and not understand, Melinda says. And so then they go talk to Charlotte again, and she goes, there's no way I went home. I would never go home. I was high, and my mom would kill me. So I went to Ryan's, and they're like, no, you needed a pit stop once the candy bowl was dry. Your mom caught you, and you beat her to death. And she's like, I think I would remember that. And then they're like, well, do you remember what you were wearing? And she was like, "Um, yeah, it's all at Ryan's, like jeans, a T-shirt, my green sweater. So now we're at Ryan's seeing Stabler gather up all the clothes and then he finds her tennis shoe and boom, it has blood on the bottom of it. It gets tested and it was her mother's blood. They put the shoe in front of her and she's like, holy fuck, I was there. I don't remember it. But then she goes, I did it. I killed my mom. And then out of nowhere, punches her arm through the two-way glass in the fishbowl that we call it. Like the one-way glass, I'm sorry. Like the glass that they look at through the interrogation just puts her little 16-year-old arm right through it. And I don't know how strong that glass is if a teen can just fucking punch right through it. But now her arm is badly cut and bleeding. Craig but I also believe that she doesn't remember or know anything because like you would try to hide that evidence, you know? Yeah, exactly. So. You would like leave a bloody tennis shoe. It's like your dad's a lawyer. You've picked up some stuff about how to defend your, like about how to hide your crimes, I'm sure, you know? So... Cragen calls a bus and calls it an attempted suicide, which seems like a stretch to me. Like, I think she was just freaking out and punched the thing. I don't know that she necessarily thought that was going to end her life, but, you know, Cragen categorizing it. Uh, top of Act 3, they're at the hospital. Sidney Truex is there. He's Now he's just, he's downgraded from around the head bandage to just one big bandage on his forehead. And he's like screaming at the cops, what did you do to my daughter? You interrogated her without a lawyer? She is innocent, detective. Like the accent is so wild. I do love, he's just trying to cover up his Britishness. And he says, they're like, you said you saw her there. And he goes, I had a head injury. I don't know what I saw. You better stay away from her. And they're like, she's going to Rikers. And he goes, over my dead body. So now we cut to Sydney, walk and talk with Diane Neal, a.k.a. Casey Novak. And Kate, you know, this is a huge moment for Diane Neal. If you can go back and watch it and imagine how giddy she is that she's getting to walk with this man that she loves. And um, Casey is like begging him, like, do not represent your own daughter in court. That is a bad idea. And he's like, no, I'm going to do it. And he's like, and I'm going to win. He's like, my daughter is a repressed drug addict who needs help, not prison. And and he says, the jury's going to see her as a victim. And Casey's like, not after they see the crime scene pictures and hear how Charlotte sodomized her own mother with a candlestick? Like, this is not going to go great. And he's like, well, I'm going for a not guilty by mental disease or defect defense. And and Casey's like, all right, we'll let Huang interview her. So cut to Huang talking to Charlotte in the hospital where she's recovering from her glass punching incident. She says she and her mother never had a relationship because the mother never had time for her. And it's like, okay, I get that you're a pharmaceutical rep, but like my friend's a pharmaceutical rep and she's a single mom of two. She's a great mom. Like, I don't know if it's like, you know, everything in SVU is the most high powered pharmaceutical. Yeah, but it's like, oh, she doesn't have time for me. But also if I came home high, she would kill me. Yeah. So it's like, which is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, it sounds like maybe she's one of these moms that's like, doesn't really pay a lot of attention to the kid and spend quality time, but just throws out a lot of rules and doles out a lot of like, you know, boundaries, but like doesn't give back the other, like the loving part of the relationship. But I, you know, I'm not blaming a victim here. I'm just saying from what I'm gathering. No, you're saying she deserved to die. I'm saying she deserved to die in a horrible, bloody way and have her son dangle her lifeless arm trying to wake her up. No, of course not. I just, it's also not a real person, but you know what I'm saying. She says they were always fighting and they're like, about what? And she's like, what What do you want? Like teen shit, curfews, clothes, smoking, parties, boys, everything. And she said the fights got worse as she got older and she started fighting back. She's like, well, did it ever get physical? She's like, well, she threw a pile of dirty clothes at me and said that I couldn't go out until I did my laundry. I'm like, that's hardly feels like physical. Like a pile of dirty clothes, those are soft. Um, she said her mom blocked her when she tried to get by her and then she pushed her out of the way and she fell down the stairs. So the mom said she popped a few Vicodin and she was fine. But then last month, the mom smacked her for taking money out of her wallet. She said she hit her back and that stopped her. And she said she never laid a hand on me again. So I don't know. I wonder if the mom would have gotten more abusive, but... Uh, Huang tells Casey that the mother and daughter had a volatile relationship that turned violent long before the attack. This, but it seems like it was only a month ago and it was one slap. I don't know if I can count the laundry, but maybe there was other stuff. This plus drugs were lethal. The rage was there even, and the drugs would have exacerbated that. And so Huang says she learned how to use violence to her benefit like a, a while ago. She learned that violence is what got her what she wanted. So then Novak says, now I can't accept the insanity plea that I know that there's this like history of violence. Then she gets a phone call. She's like, Novak, sex crimes. As she listens for one second and goes, this changes everything. That was Warner. She double-checked the urine they found and done, done, it's from a man. So Ryan must have been with her. Let's see if Tommy can ID him. So we cut to this little bull cut cutie looking at headshots of deadbeats. And when he sees Ryan's picture, he goes, that's him. That's the monster who hurt my daddy. It's interesting that Tommy wouldn't know what Ryan looked like anyway, like just from dating the sister for a little while. Maybe well, I don't like think he was allowed, allowed in the house. I don't think he was yeah, allowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Benson and Stabler go find Ryan. He runs. He's coming out of his apartment building. They're like, Ryan, he runs, they chase him, and Stabler is a vision in denim, okay? He's got a full Canadian tuxedo on. Ryan tries to climb a fence, they fight. Ryan keeps throwing punches at Stabler, but eventually Stabler gives him one big punch in the face, gets him down on the ground to cuff him. When he turns him over to cuff him, he realizes that he's gone limp, and he's like, turns him back over, and he's like, Ryan, Ryan tries to get, he's totally unconscious. He starts to administer CPR, but then Liv shows up because she's tried to head him off a different way. So Liv has not seen the entire attack, but she gets there as the cuffing is happening. And Liv takes his pulse and is like, he's dead. And Stabler looks panicked, rightfully so. Because like, he didn't mean to kill him. I, it, You get the impression. At the scene, Melinda's asking Liv questions while Cragen asks Elliot questions. Everyone is confused. Liv's like, I never saw Elliot use a chokehold, but I saw Ryan throw a ton of punches at Elliot. And then he's telling Cragen what happened when our pal Bobby Burke shows up. That's uh, John Robert Burke, a.k.a. Tucker from IAB. Walks up. Stabler's like, here comes the rat squad. So we know IAB gets involved. You know, shit's about to get real. So cut to an almost pitch black interrogation room. Like, they have not paid their light bill at IAB. Tucker and Stabler are in the dark, staring at each other, like, with... They truly light Tucker and act like he is Darth Vader. Yeah. It is yeah. just, um, the doom and gloom is coming. 
they give him one of the craziest arcs on that show ever yeah. because then you just like love him by the time he dies. Spoiler alert if you're only on season eight. Tucker is laying into Stabler about how all these witnesses saw you beat Ryan and Stabler's calm. He's like, no, nope, I restrained him after he attacked me. I used no unnecessary force. And he's like, he got five punches in on me and then I punched him back once. And then, you know, Tucker's like, so all the witnesses are lying? And he's like, it's 10 witnesses. That's not good. And you should really control your temper, detective, he says to him. And Tucker says, I can't risk someone with your anger issues on the street and suspends him. Stabler's like, I didn't kill that kid. And he goes, I'll let Melinda be the final word on that. So, Melinda's doing her autopsy. She's literally pulling out organs, recording her notes with a microphone that's suspended. So she kind of looks like she's doing a science-y open mic. And um, Benson b- busts in like kind of breathless, like, Melinda. And Melinda's like, I can't talk to you about this. And Liv's like, well, do you know what happened? And she's like, he bled to death internally because his spleen was ruptured. And the only way his spleen could have been ruptured is from blunt force trauma. Now I Googled the spleen. I think I thought the spleen was like way down, sort of like where your abdomen is. It's up higher. It's kind of like, it looks like it's under your rib cage a little bit. Like it's up much up higher in your body than I thought it was. Benson is standing up for Elliot. Like he didn't beat him. You know that Melinda, you know him. And Melinda's like, I know what the body tells me. I'm very, uh, you know, I'm not emotional about these things. She wants Elliot exonerated too, but the spleen is the only cause of death and by homicide. And that's why she, how she's going to rule. The music intensifies and Liv's like, well, if you can't prove he didn't murder anyone, I will. So Liv, and you know, Liv has these like beautiful curtain bangs and ponytail. I do like this p- part of her hair journey. I really like this part. So Liv goes to talk to Sydney Truex and she's like, listen, I need to talk to your daughter again. And he's like, she doesn't remember anything. And Liv's like, that's why I want to give her a sodium amytal interview. And that's also known as truth serum. They, it's, it's used sometimes, but it's not accepted by courts. And he's like, my daughter's a recovering drug addict. Do you want me to let her let you pump her full of drugs to save your partner's ass? And she's like, well, if you'll recall, sir, your daughter is still charged with her mother's murder. So if Ryan is the killer, this will exonerate her as well. Because right now, the jury is going to see Ryan as a defenseless victim beaten by a cop. But Charlotte's testimony could swing the guilt back over to Ryan. And he tells Liv, wow, you should have been a lawyer. Because like he's guessing that's like Liv's whole tack and it is. She's like, I have no hard proof. I need to prove that Ryan killed your wife. So we cut to Huang giving the sodium amytal interview to Charlotte. She's lying down, eyes closed. It sort of feels like, you know, it sort of feels like Adriana's ketamine thing before she starts uh, crying and going crazy. If you're a house... Ketamine is in. It's in. Oh, and it done been in. It's been in for a couple of years. I have a couple friends that do it regularly as therapy. Yeah. So, yeah, people are really experimenting with it. It's supposed to be, I've heard ketamine and- For it to reach the housewives, that's mainstream. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. But ketamine and ecstasy, I believe, MDMA, they're using for, like I I had my friend who passed away a year or so ago used MDMA in her like before for a lot of her therapy to sort of like accept her, you know, her fate of like what was going to happen. And she told us a lot about her therapy doing that. It's, it's interesting like what some of these drugs can be used for good. Well, obviously ketamine is usually used to tranquilize a horse, but you know, it's also used in parties. So Charlotte is lying there still, eyes closed, telling him quietly, calmly, everything about the evening of the murder. She remembers the party. She's mad at her mom because she said that her mom told her she has to break up with Ryan that night. Ryan is exing. 
which I would assume means ecstasy, but I don't think anyone's really brought that up yet. So maybe it means he's crossing like oxy. Oh, oxy. It's probably oxy. He wants more drugs, but there aren't any. So he leaves and she follows him because he has her keys. But he gets in a cab and she doesn't have any money, so she walks home. The door is open when she gets there. She goes inside. Ryan is coming up from the basement with all these pill boxes. This is just a she little follows- too hokey, this truth serum therapy. Yeah. It's really hard for me to get behind this part. It's a little bit like you don't really know how to wrap it up, so you just kind of like unlock someone's memory, you know? <laughs> yeah. So... She follows him upstairs. He says, give me the good stuff or I'll kill you. The mom sees Charlotte and says, I'm calling the cops. And then he drags the mother into the bedroom. Charlotte goes into the bedroom, her own bedroom, to lie down because she's so tired. But then she hears her mom screaming, goes into her mother's bedroom. Ryan is on top of her, hitting her. There's so much blood. The screaming finally stops. Ryan has something shiny, clearly talking about the candlestick. He does horrible things to her. The door slams. And then she hears dad and Tommy are coming upstairs. She hears a crash. Her dad is on the ground. Tommy looks so scared. I want to help him, but he runs away. So this explains why Tommy was like, get the fuck away from me. But I wonder why Tommy never said Charlotte was there, probably scared because it's his sister and she has access to him. I don't know. I feel like brothers and sisters love to tattle on each other. And if he had said she was there, it would have saved everybody a lot of time. And honestly, Ryan would probably still be alive. No, but also like siblings having issues as if they're close in age. Like this yeah. teen and this little boy aren't going to, I'm going to tell, you know, it's like different. Yeah. Because my yeah. sister's 10 years older than me and like a lot of people have a lot of physical violence with their siblings. And it's like, it would be crazy if this teen was beating a young baby. You know what I mean? Oh no, not beating, but just like scared of what she might do now that he's seen this violent thing. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like the kid would have been like, and Charlotte was there. And like, maybe there could have been a thing where they were like, no, you didn't see Charlotte. Like she couldn't have been there or something like they deny what he's saying. But like, I think he would have said that she was there, but maybe I'm, you know, he was very traumatized as well. So then she continues and says, I hear the alarm. But then we just leave and we go back to Ryan's. So the dad is hearing this whole thing and he's stunned. Also, don't you have to think that Ryan was probably so psyched when he woke up in the morning and realized his girlfriend didn't remember a goddamn thing? Like he was probably like, so about last night. And she's like, yeah, that party was crazy, right? And he's like, cool, you don't remember anything. (laughs) Like, so... If Ryan did it, then why did Charlotte confess, Liv asks Huang. And Huang's like, well, she was high. She has no conscious memory of the murder. She just felt guilty and she confessed and her blood was on the tennis shoes. She thought, oh, I must have done this. It is still pretty wild to confess something you have no memory of. But the dad is shocked and he was like, he was like, you know what? I was going to try to get her off of this. But even though deep down, I thought she did do it. And I think he's just like happy and relieved to hear that she didn't do it. But he was like, I was going to use all my fucking law tricks to get her off, even if she is a cold-blooded murderer who killed my wife and did horrific things with her body. So Casey and Liv are having another like late-night chat that we've seen before. Casey's like, well, the sodium amatol interview is not admissible in court, but it's enough to convince me, so I'll drop the murder charge. Didn't realize that could happen, but IAB isn't going to ruin Elliot's career because some murder died in his custody. And a guy comes by and is like, Casey, turn on Channel 10. And then... 
and there's cell phone footage of Stabler and Ryan's scuffle, and it's on the news. Ryan's family wants Elliot charged with his murder because they're St. Bart's rich family. They are obviously like, hold the cops accountable, even though our son might be a murderer. Casey goes, again, this changes everything. And it's the second time in the episode she said that. And now IAB is going to have to go after Elliot, she says. Like, there's no way they can sweep this under the rug now that it's gotten so public and that there's video of the scuffle. So Liv gets a call and she's like, I'll be right there. So now she's at IAB for her interview in the darkness and Tucker is asking her questions. She says, Elliot is always professional. I support his actions and his decisions. They start going through Elliot's whole explosive past. Like, what about the time he did this? What about the time he did that? And every time Liv's like, that was to stop a child from who was kidnapped. That was to stop a child predator. Like everything, she has a full answer for every single one. And then even after one of them, she goes, well, after that one, he went into counseling. <laughs> and so Olivia is telling him like, look, we work in SVU. We got to do what we got to do. This is about kids, people that are vulnerable victims. Meanwhile, Elliot is like, we're cutting to scenes of Elliot at an apartment getting drunk at the time of Olivia's interview. It's like overlaid over it. And if you'll remember, Elliot is not at this moment living at home with Kathy. They are separated. And because he is too married to his job and his marriage and his family life is suffering, blah, blah, blah. So Tucker brings up like every single time uh, Stabler crossed the line. It's so many times. Yeah, I said that. And then she goes, my partner is not a killer. So now in Cragen's office, Elliot is basically giving up. He's like, yeah, listen, IAB suspended me. The press has me already convicted. The grand jury is totally going to indict. Like, that's a wrap, folks. Like, Elliot's just not going to fight for himself. And Liv and Cragen are like, no, you have to fight. And he's like, it's over. So now we're at Elliot's bachelor pad and he's like watching the footage over and over again, like trying to figure out like where he went wrong. Like, what, what did I do to this kid to kill him? And there's a knock at the door and it's Melinda. She's like, I just heard. I'm so sorry, Elliot. And I think she just heard, I don't know, that the grand jury is going to go through. Yes, that IAB is going to like push for the grand jury and he's going to go to trial. And he says, whatever, you were doing your job. I wouldn't ask you to do anything different. So he's looking at the footage over and over and she sees him and she goes, don't torture yourself. And he goes, I never tried to hurt Ryan. I tried to save him. And Warner's like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I gave him CPR. And Warner's like, well, no one told me that. That changes everything. Literally, for the third time in the episode, someone goes, that changes everything. Which is funny because my husband and I say that there's always a point in every movie where someone says something like that. And we always use the movie Pollock where Lily Taylor's character goes, you just blew the... Or she goes, Pollock, you just blew the whole thing wide open. And like we say that all the time whenever there's like a, whoa, you just changed the whole game. You know, there's always lines like that in movies and stuff. So they're killing that line three times in this episode. The chest compressions, M Melinda says, are what could have ruptured the spleen. That's when I Googled the spleen. I was like, where's the spleen? And it's not far from where you would be doing chest compressions. So Elliot's like, well, I had to do something. He stopped breathing. And Melinda's like, well, so he was dead before you ruptured his spleen then. So what killed him? And she's like, I didn't miss anything on autopsy. So he gives Melinda all the records and these two get down to a full like homeland. They're about to start a board with red string on it. Like these two are just going through files. They're crumpling up papers that are irrelevant. Like these two are about to order a pizza. And then they realize from the like toxicology, he was on oxy ecstasy, and cold tablets. So I guess Xing is when you're doing oxy and X. And uh, what else was in the candy bowl? And Elliot tells her Valium, Ritalin, Propranolol, and Vicodin. And she goes, wait a second. 
Propranolol is for people with heart problems. I need to see his medical records. So cut to trial. Melinda's on the stand saying, explaining that Ryan had been diagnosed with a cardiac condition called long QT syndrome, an abnormal heart thing that can lead to cardiac arrest. Why were his medical records never examined previously? Is that not relevant to an autopsy? It seems like that would have that's what it makes sense. It wasn't originally in her report because you can't see an arrhythmia on an autopsy. So he had a prescription, but he wasn't taking his meds. He was donating them to this party. Uh, so the stress of running from Elliot triggered the arrhythmia that killed him. Ryan, it turns out, brought propranolol to the farm party, which is really not fun for anybody. It's not the kind of stuff you bring to like get high and have fun. So now we're outside of the courtroom and a guy comes out and tells Elliot, the jury's voted, you're all good. So. He didn't get indicted. And, you know, Elliot says, thanks. Liv says, welcome back. And then Elliot shows up at home, his house with Kathy, and says, Kathy, we need to talk. She says, I saw the news. I knew you didn't kill that boy. But it's like, did you not reach out? Like, he's still, you're still married. He's like on trial. He might go to jail. And um, he's like, it's been a rough couple of days. And I've been thinking about what's important to me. I love my job and I love my family. And I almost lost both of them. And I want to come home. And Kathy gives like a face like she's thinking about it, but looks like she's leaning towards being like, no problem. And um, that's Dick Wolf, baby. But I can see this episode to me feels like one of the most Bensler heavy episodes where I can see why people think they're in love because she stops at nothing. She's like, there's no way he could have done this. It's like, you've seen him use excessive force a million times, but you're like, not my partner. There's just no way. Like, she can't imagine working without him. If you're one of these people that ships the two of them, this episode's going to give you a huge boner because she's fighting for him, fighting for him, fighting for him. And then when all her work pays off and she basically gets him exonerated, he goes home to Kathy, which is another blow for the Bensler people, you know, because... That's not what they want to happen. So I also really, this episode, like when they go against Melinda in any way, like off with their heads. Yeah. I you when they're like, come on, you know he didn't do it. And it's like she could just only go off the evidence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she will continue to fight. You know. But it's like it it is crazy because it's like the CPR was probably on the video footage. Like no one knew about the CPR. Like a lot of times when you give people CPR, you like crack their sternum. Like, I don't know. I just would have assumed that that would have been included or like, oh, the, the detail. He was not breathing when I turned him over. Like, so he was dead before the CPR. So I don't know. But I love this episode. It's a wild one. I'm glad we got to do it. Yeah. And I know nothing about this case. So stay tuned for Lisa's full report. So this is like fucked because the case is so dark, so twisted, so fucked up. Barely any information. Oh my God. Like the two papers I found, one was in New Zealand and one seems like a rag mag. And we'll get into why, like there, something with Canada where you can't publish names, but it's like, it, it is wild how limited information it is because the crime is pretty horrific. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I've lost my touch, but it was really hard finding information about this. So it happened in Canada, southeast Alberta, along the South Saskatchewan River. And that's not that important, but I did want to prove that I could say Saskatchewan. So that's why yes. I, I put it in. And um, so this girl's name is Jasmine Richardson. And she is the youngest person ever in Canada ever convicted of a multiple first-degree murder counts. 
So that's her claim to fame. So April 23rd, 2006, a young boy saw bodies through the window of the Richardson family home. And that is what prompted, you know, authorities to come. So what was inside was that the previous night, Jasmine Richardson, 12 years old, stabbed her brother Jacob, aged eight, to death while her boyfriend killed her mom and dad. Her boyfriend. Oh my God. Thank God Tommy made it through. I know. In real life, I mean, in, the, in fake it's life, horrible. but the real boy. Oh. So her boyfriend was 23 years old and she is 12. Ew. So obviously her parents did not want them to be together. Yes. So, and he described, he's like a goth and he considered himself a 300-year-old werewolf vampire. So that's like what he thought his being was. And so obviously her parents were like, can you not go out with this 23-year-old who thinks he's a vampire werewolf who's 300 years old? Okay. So he was murdering the parents while she was killing her brother. He snuck in through the basement with a ski mask on and he had two knives with him. The mom heard a noise and went downstairs to investigate. That's when he began stabbing her and her screams are what woke up her husband. And so then he went down and he was violently stabbed as well. So this dude stabbed the mother, Deborah Richardson, 12 times, including a 12 centimeter deep piercing in her heart. Oh God. That is deep. Yeah. And then stabbed the father, Mark Richardson, 24 times, including nine stabs in his back. The dad asked, why are you doing this? And he said, it was your daughter who wanted it. And this is according to the Daily Star. And I don't know how they would know this detail. Maybe it came out in court, but this just seems... Mm. Maybe maybe he said it in like in... Why am I forgetting the word? Interrogation, whatever. So the brother was upstairs holding his lightsaber across his chest and in his room, like so scared. And then, so this is another, so the so then the, you know, his sister arrives in the doorway and I'm sure like the Daily Star is like, I bet the kid was so relieved to see his sister. Yeah. Like he's hearing all this commotion. He sees his big sister. He's like, oh, yay. And then she fucking killed him. She stabbed him five times, um, including one deep slash across his neck. Jesus Christ. Psycho. This is dark. Later in testimony, she testified that Jacob pleaded for his life and emitted a gurgling sound as she stabbed him. And the New Zealand Herald said she also said that it was too cruel to leave him without their parents. So she was trying to do him a favor and just get him out of the world. Okay. Yeah. She was going to go live with her werewolf boyfriend off in the a cave or something. Okay. Yeah. When the cops came, they found the parents in the basement and then the brother was in his upstairs bedroom and they found blood spattered all over Jacob's room, like all over his toys. Oh. Yeah. The detectives at first thought maybe Jasmine was kidnapped by some crazed killer, and so they were really scared. But in reality, Jasmine and Jeremy went on the run because they plotted these killings so they could run away together. They were arrested 100 miles away, so don't worry. Now, I'm going to rewind a little bit. So Jasmine and Jeremy, they met at a punk rock concert, and she started to love the goth lifestyle. And that was Calgary in 2005. And they kept touch on MySpace and VampireFreaks.com. Wow. <laughs> it's like so- that feels like an SVU website. That feels like a fake website SVU made up. It's just horrible to laugh during this cr- fucked of a crime, but it's vampirefreaks.com it does. Yeah. It's hard not to giggle a little bit. 
But she's also 12, so it's pretty dark and awful. She was a clean-cut girl, and then she started changing. But that also happens. Like, you get influenced, you know. Like, everyone thinks they're a witch at some point in their lives. So, obviously, when her parents found out about this relationship, they were not into it. And they were like, you cannot see this vampire freak. They took her computer away. And even though he is a werewolf with a vial of blood around his neck, it was her idea to kill the family. Is the consensus. They found messages online between these people and she wrote, I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. And that's according to the NZ Herald. And according to, you know, this Daily Star, which reminds me of the Sex in the City, the New York Star, like nothing with a star is real journalism. Like, I don't understand. (laughs) Like, where are the articles? And then I was like, but you can get Canadian news. Like, we did the Barbie and Ken killers. Yeah. We talked about people from Winnipeg. We did that case with the blood straw, that hunt, like, serendipity. So I'm just like... And why is, like, why is New Zealand so pumped on it? Like, that's across the world. Like, why are they... Why do they have so much information? Yeah. It's weird. I wonder if if Canada just keeps, like, shit with underage people, like, really under wraps or something. Because the Barbie killers weren't underage. Just the victim. Well, I will get, there are details about it, but it still does not, it doesn't do it for me because even if, yeah, so we'll get to it, but whatever. So he had creepy messages too, though. It's not like her. He wrote to her, can we get together and kill people together? Um, That's according to the Daily Star. And then he publicly posted, my lover's rents are totally unfair. And they say that they really care. They don't know what is going on. They just assume. Their throats, I want to slit. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. Jeez. Dark. So she was pretty loose with this plan. And I guess she discussed it with a ton of friends, but nobody believed it was true. You know? Yeah. They just were like, okay, yeah, you're going to kill your parents. Sure, you and the werewolf are going to go kill people. Twilight. Uh, We get it. Yeah. And so April 23rd, 2006, like I said, Stanky, Stanky, the guy, he (laughs) got... What? How do you say? It's just funny when you said stanky. Like, that's funny. (laughs) Do the stanky leg. So he got jazzed uh, up by watching Natural Born Killers, which was his favorite romance movie. Which I've never seen. I haven't either. Maybe we could do a dual, uh, dual watch each other's little blind spots and watch that one. So he downed a bottle of red wine along with some beer, and then he went to visit Jasmine's parents. So... Anyways, so while they're on the run, like, truly just two hours after the deaths, they were seen laughing and kissing at a restaurant. Wow. When they were asked why they they did this, Richardson said, I loved him so much, I thought it would bring us closer together. And that's a quote from the New Zealand Herald. This reminds me of, like, after Gypsy Rose and her boyfriend killed the mom, they were, like, seen, like, canoodling and, like, you know, kissing and having a good time. Yeah. So June 2007, she went on trial at age 14 for three counts of first-degree murder and was found guilty on all three and sentenced to 10 years in jail. Yes, 10. Wow. That's the maximum allowed by Canada's Youth Criminal Justice Act. And she's just in jail. Like, that would be jail jail, not, like, juvenile jail. So she also served four years in a psychiatric hospital and then four years under uh, conditional community supervision and also was able to attend Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. So I'm not really sure. I mean, she was out in 2016. So these, like, these four and four years are, like, included within the 10. Yeah. So I'm not really sure, but 10 does not seem like enough. I don't know. Sorry. I just, mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. So she's out. 
She's in the streets. She had a final court hearing May 2016, during which she offered no apology or expression of remorse for what she had done. She is living in a secret location. Her name cannot be published in her home country, where she is known as JR. And she has been described as a poster child for rehabilitation. I don't buy that. But yeah, so this is so this is it. Her name cannot be published in her home country. But like that's post changing her name and girl, but like when it first happened, was there not news outlets that were reporting? Yeah. Have those been wiped? Like you can't just wipe crimes away. Like I am really confused by or this. Like her parents' names, like her parents' names. It's not like the murder of so and so and so and so, even if you don't name the killers, like, you know. Yeah, I guess I didn't. I didn't try to look that up. Mark Richardson, Canada. Let's see if I... I mean, that's a really common name, I'm sure, too. Find a grave. Great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Findagrave.com and LinkedIn. Okay, this is fucked up. Yeah, it's just like... So, I... I Okay, then some images do show up, but it's all the New Zealand Herald and then not real sources. It's like... I mean, Medium, I'll read for some stuff. Yen News, Sudbury Star, like Mama... Mama Maya. Like, nothing was real. Yeah, nothing is, like, good, like, solid, credible journalism. No, not that we would use. And so, like, it is really confusing to me. Wow. Yeah. I guess, wait, there's one that I just saw that Sudbury Star might be real. No, it looks pretty shady too. Damn. So many stars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I guess she cannot be named because of the Youth Criminal Justice Act. And that's that. Wow. So that's why there's really no information about her. Damn. Damn, damn, damn. I wish I found it sooner. I didn't think to Google the parents' names. Well, I wasn't even like, I mean, I wasn't trying to tell you like how to do it. I just was kind of like, it's weird that the coverage wouldn't even be like, hi, two people from your community died. So I get that you can't print the kids' names, but like, is there coverage of what's ha- what happened to these people, you know? Yeah, it's really strange. Or, you know, like you're not supposed to fight in mixed company, you know, about that. <laughs> or like Chris Rock has this joke with Will Smith where it's like, don't fight in front of white people. Like that kind of a thing. I wonder if that's with Canada where it's like, we can't let America read about our crime. Like no mixed company. (laughs) Is Southeast Alberta like rural? I'm just looking. Interesting. Well, because I've performed in um, Edmonton, which I think is Alberta. I'm not sure. I've been to Alberta, but I think it's a Providence. Yeah, Canadian Providence. Yes. Yeah. I was right. It's known for its natural beauty, richness in fossils, and for housing important nature reserves. I just wonder if it was like kind of in like an off the beaten path area. So nobody was really covering it also because journalism is dying slowly, but go on. Yeah, whatever. So people think she rehabilitated or not. Who knows? She's out in the wilds. That's all I know. And then in 2008, Stank... (laughs) I don't know why I can't say his last name. What's his first name? I already forgot. Jeremy. It's probably Stein Jeremy. Yeah. So in 2008, Jeremy S. was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder as well and was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences in prison with the earliest parole date for 25 years. So in 2033 will be the first time that he can um, go in front of the parole board. But he was a grown man, so he got yeah. three life sentences. Wow. 
But that's what you get for committing crimes with a child. She's going to get less time. They should have got him for statutory rape too. Um, but Listen, this is a horrific crime. If you know how to get more information or you understand stuff about Canada and crimes and sealing shit, let us know. Because she also changed her name. So it's like... Why can't we just publish this young person's name? Yeah, why that can't did we talk it? about it now? Yeah, or like there that there hasn't been. I don't know. I'm I'm also like like there hasn't been like made for TV movies or like anything like that. It is but, fu- it is so fucked though. Yeah, like, to kill your little brother who is like yeah waiting for you probably like I it, it is sick and you know we also I guess part of the allure too that I thought there would be more information is like. Was it her? Was it him? He is a grown man. So, like, she's a child. Yeah. She's probably easily influenced. Or, like, is, and because if you're that big of a psycho to do this, will you be a, rehabilitated in a decade? Or is this like an Ed yeah. Kemper situation where she figured out how to trick them into saying what she wanted? Or is she like, I can't believe I did that? Like, there's just so many unanswered questions. I mean, I know. And I want to say like at 12, even if you're the one that initiated the idea on a message board, a lot of 12-year-olds say they want to kill their fucking parents, you know? I have a feeling this guy got to her about what sacrificing human life, what that means, why it has to happen so you can have your happiness or achieve X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? Like, I I would say that most 12-year-olds, unless you're born like a psychopath, like, are just highly vulnerable and influenced by, you know, older influences. Yeah. That's just that's just me spitballing. Maybe she's a total psycho from birth. Who knows? It's just so horrible. That's horrible. Well, we don't have a guess, but... We don't... <laughs> Stay we will tuned. get to our postmortem any second now. Okay, so uh, post-mortem of this week's episode is, oh my God. I mean, that's so funny that we randomly just talked about parenting and like saying stuff so your kids will listen. And then this, I didn't even put that together that this episode, like the crux of it is that this mom like won't really listen to her daughter and like they just have this contentious relationship and that's like why the mother ends up brutally murdered. <laughs> like, um, I just uh, really hope that doesn't happen to me, I guess, is my postmortem takeaway. Um, I'll just let Rosie date anyone because I don't want her to kill me. Um, no, it's like this, it's honestly such a balancing act. I don't know what the right answer is because, you know, classic, it's if you fight too hard, the kid's going to want it. Right. But you can't just let your kid date a 20 plus year old. You know, you just, you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's. But then I also understand the hesitation of like, I don't want this person going to jail. This twenty-year-old's like, are they really committing crime, or do you really think they're a criminal, or what? You know, right, right, right. Like, so I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing to do. Like, is Kathy Moriarty also ended up dead when her, her character tried yep. to report him for statutory rape. You know, um, but I don't. So know. what do you do, or do you create a thing where? Or it's like you can only be hanging the house. Like, I don't know. What do you what do you do if your 16-year-old loves a 20-year-old who you don't think is a pedophile, but you also don't think it's right? Yeah. I don't know. 
I should we do a poll? Would like to limit contact of where my 16-year-old would meet a 20-year-old. I guess work. There's all kinds of places. Fuck yeah. The mall. Yeah. And you're like, I want you to get a job, but then it's like what you can't like be with any like one of an employee you meet who's four years apart from you. I don't know. I guess that's like really, that's really tough. The that's really tough. I was so like not, I was so not dating in high school that it's like I can't even remember what, if I knew anybody who did that or like anything like, like that, like how how their parents handled it or whatever. Like, I can't think of it. Oh, no. When I was in eighth grade, I definitely knew someone that was dating a 22 year old. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. And there was a picture of her. I remember so vividly this photo because she's wearing like an oversized sweatshirt, but she did participate in self-harm. So like her thighs were all cut up. And then this like older 22 was like um like shoulder, you know, like holding her from behind. And I remember this that photo so vividly. And I remember it being like fucking weird and fucked up. Oh my but like God. not that fucked up that I did it. Like, but it was like, oh, I'm not in your group. <laughs> like, I can't well, believe Well, actually, this. one of my friends that you have actually met twice at one of our live shows, she, when she was like 12, looked like a 17-year-old. Like, she just looked older forever. Like, I met her when she was 12 years old and she had a picture of her 16-year-old boyfriend in her tent at camp. And I was like, this is your boyfriend? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I bet nobody thinks this is weird because you look older, but you are not older. Like 12 and 16 is not a normal distance to me. Like I'm almost no. more okay with 16, 20, like than 12, 16. Like she had like probably had her period. She looked older, but like it was, I remember being like, I'm, this is too much. She grew up and became my friend. So it's, I'm not like, you know. Oh, even if someone looks a little older, there is no way an adult does not know that's a child. Right. Like, there's just no fucking way. Like, I've performed at colleges. They look like children. I'm sorry. Like, it is a lie. If someone says, like, oh, I didn't know they looked old, like, I just don't believe it. The people that are like, oh, I didn't know are liars. But maybe that's not true because most people in porn are like 18, 19, 28, 21, 22. Yeah, they I look, guess they look pretty fucking mature. Yeah. I mean... You're right. I don't know what I'm saying. The looks is one thing. I just can't believe that you're a person that's like in your 20s and you're going on a date with an eighth grader and you think there's anything like you're not telling then, like when you're talking. Like, you know what I mean? Just like, well, what no, are you relating pedophile. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pedophiles. Yeah, that's what they. Anyway, that's what they relate on. <laughs> anyway, relating on. I also feel like this episode specifically, this episode of SVU has a lot of like letting rich kids run around the city and do pill parties and shit like that, which is like never, which is always my nightmare about like raising kids in the city a little bit. Not that no, the suburbs girl, are way more fucked up. I'm sure. Yeah, because there's more space. Like in the city, you are on top of each other. It is apartments or like. Even if it's not, it's just like more connect, like tight. I feel the suburbs, you know, it's these giant basements. It's these huge McMansions. It's lots Parents of Parents going out space. of town for long trips and being like, you're fine at the house, you know? Yeah, there's a reason like meth and opioids and all these things are huge in um, rural areas. There's nothing yeah. to do. No, I like, know. It, 
I get that you can be a bad girl in a city because you're growing up faster and you see lots of things and maybe you're seeing like someone jerk off on the street. But I do believe <laughs> the rural, suburban, ride your bike somewhere, no one's around. Like uh, there's more devious things afoot. I don't know the numbers. Yeah. Places where but there are I, woods. Places where there are woods, where there are quarries. Yeah. Uh, well, we do know the numbers for meth. And guess what? It's in Kansas and Appalachia. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, if you are in the middle of nowhere and there, it's between tipping a cow and getting high, maybe you're going to get high. I mean, yeah. this is crazy. I sound, I sound like a reverse conservative boomer. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my thing. They're they're so worried about these cities and California being unsafe. And it's like, well, you hate us. So why do you care? What do you care? But also, ha ha. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, like, look at your backyard. You know what I mean? Like, Truly. Truly. But I really hope that the girl in this episode and her little brother, Tommy, can uh, no, work you through can and be have good a or bad life together. <laughs> you can be good or bad anywhere. I mean, little Tommy. I mean, little Tommy. I honestly don't know, like, what I said throughout this postmortem if it had anything to do with the episode. Well, no, I would also I, say— I feel like I'm disassociating. I'm basically just like— all you hillbillies are doing meth and city kids are going to art museums. Like, and <laughs> this is what I'll prove. No one thinks that you are, think, are saying that. But, well, okay. So I will also say, just because this episode involves, uh, we also talked about the true crime, this girl and her boyfriend, like murdering an entire family. Let's take a page out of Gypsy Rose's uh, recent press tour where she said, I went about this the wrong way. Like she felt trapped and she even said to Joy on The View, she was like, I did it the wrong way. And then Joy goes, don't say that. She goes, well, no, I mean, I I went to jail. I committed a crime. And then Joy was like, oh, right, that part. So, I mean- No, Gypsy went, murder is wrong, Joy. Yeah. <laughs> so let don't don't let's uh, the postmortem is don't murder your parents. Figure out another way, and I hope there are people have resources where murder isn't the only answer. In Gypsy's case, it felt like it kind yeah. of almost was. I but. I know I've been so focused on the age gap, love, and and pedo that I forgot that there were brutal murders throughout this um, thing. Yes, yes. Go yeah, gothic murders, vampire murder. Well, the first the, the in the episode the guys murdering for drugs, right? In the set, in the real life one, the dark arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were trying to they were trying to do natural born killers, right? They were trying to like uh be Yeah. criminals. Um anyway, let's get into our what would sister peg do for this week. That's our weekly segment where we direct you towards an organization, a blog, a book, another podcast episode, something to give you more info about what we talked about today. And this one was a little bit tough because the crimes are all over the map. And I just felt bad for little Tommy having to witness, um, you know, so much violence that I wanted to this week point you to the organization Futures Without Violence. Uh, their mission is to prevent and end violence against women and children around the world. They have groundbreaking programs, policy development, and public action campaigns that seek to heal those that are traumatized by violence today and to create healthy families and communities free of violence tomorrow. So... You know, if Emily Van Camp's family had gone to an organization like this, maybe all the horrible tragedies wouldn't have happened. But for more info on this organization or to donate to them, go to futureswithoutviolence.org. And that will be posted in our on our stories on Instagram the day that the episode comes out. And they will be saved forever in the WWSPD highlight for this episode. Thank you so much. That's like such a good organization. And tie-in. 
Gotta care about little Tommy. Um, <laughs> next week, we'll be doing Blood, speaking of vampire killers, season six, episode 21. Um, we can't wait for the next one and the next one after that. So keep it going. XOXO forever. Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedupppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedupppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien, and our associate producer, Christina Chamberlain. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun-dun!